edition of With All Due Respect. Strong opinions on politics, life, and entertainment. Welcome to another episode of With All Due Respect, the podcast that encourages you to keep us on the download. Hello, everyone. My name is Andrew Halkram. Your host for this podcast with me, as always, is Mr. Van Sanders. Mr. Sanders, how was Seward this past weekend? You know, it was a really nice weekend. Uh, The roof that we went down to kind of fix and repair turned out to be a lot worse than we expected. But we have a game plan, and we're going to come back at it. So it was a nice weekend with good people aside from that. Excellent. Sounds like it was a very good and productive weekend. All right. As always, I'd like to thank the Anchorage Daily News for hosting this podcast on their platform and remind listeners that the very strong opinions you hear on this podcast are mine and mine alone and in no way, shape, or form represent the opinions of the Anchorage Daily News or their employees. Today on With All Due Respect, we look into the crystal ball for the 2022 governor's race and make some initial observations. In entertainment, we talk about the love affair with rural sitcoms in the 1960s and how they gave way to the urban sitcoms of the 1970s. But first, let's talk some politics. Politics. And now, for some politics. In less than 18 months, Alaskans will face another gubernatorial election. This means a couple of things in the next couple of months. It means in order to be able to raise the maximum amount of cash, potential candidates for governor have traditionally announced their candidacy in early fall. That gives them at least three months to raise money before the new year resets the clock and allows them to raise money again from the same individuals and groups. This also means serious candidates are already having conversations with potential supporters, donors, and even potential opponents to understand the playing field more clearly. Currently, there is no formal indication that Governor Dunleavy will seek re-election. The big question hanging over potential challengers is, does Governor Dunleavy seek re-election? This is certainly a question that's going to be answered in the next couple of months. But looking back on Governor Dunleavy's prior three years, I mean, let's face it, he hasn't done much, and they've been pretty rough. He hasn't delivered on any of his major campaign promises. There's been no $3,000 dividend. There's been no full dividend in the formula. His administration has been a revolving door of both incompetence and conflict of interest sandwiched between a couple of major cases of sexual misconduct. His budget cuts lost him key supporters and spurred a recall attempt. The effort to recall him from office was only stifled by the pandemic. And with the defeat of former President Trump, there's no chance of him landing some sweet cabinet gig. But most importantly, troubling for Dunleavy is his electability in the new world. Remember, Alaskans adopted ranked choice voting last November, which means Governor Dunleavy will be seeking re-election in a completely different political environment. Dunleavy is cursed with what we call a high floor and a low ceiling. 38% of voters would crawl over broken glass to vote for Mike Dunleavy. The trouble is the remaining 60% of voters. Now, after angering almost every region in the state over the last three years, Dunleavy is facing this ranked choice voting. This means that those 60% who are iffy on Dunleavy now have the luxury to actually vote against him. So, who would be the potential challengers? Well, since you're running against an incumbent, 
if he runs, you need a challenger with decent name identification. And if you're running against an incumbent Governor Dunleavy, you need somebody that's more in the middle, somebody that can draw votes from both Republicans and Democrats. Now, on the Democratic side, maybe a Senator Bill Wilikowski or maybe Forrest Dunbar makes another run. Those two at least have statewide name recognition, but I'm not sure either one has the appetite for a gubernatorial run. On the Republican side, I keep hearing the name. State Senator Natasha Von Imhoff is giving serious consideration to a run for governor. Look, I like this kid. She's got moxie. She has guts. She's been one of the few the last four years that have stood up and and told us honestly how the cow eats the grass. Side note, podcast is very intrigued by Senator Von Imhoff's BFD proposal she presented last week. So that's one name that I continue to hear. The biggest name of them all has to be former Governor Bill Walker. Over the last couple of weeks, I don't think there's any question that he's been kicking the tires considering a Walker-Dunleavy rematch in 2022. Out of all the names I've heard that are considering running for governor, and all of the names I can think of who may run for governor, Walker certainly has the inside track. He has the instant name recognition, and he's proven his ability to draw votes and support from both sides of the aisle, which again is much more critical with ranked choice voting in 2022. Over the last six years, I've had the opportunity to watch both former Governor Walker and current Governor Dunleavy, and among the biggest differences between Walker and Dunleavy, Walker tells Alaskans the truth. I mean, you have a guy who cut the budget by 40% and then told us he couldn't really cut much more. He then told us that we couldn't afford a supersized PFD. Dunleavy got elected. He beat Walker, saying he could cut the budget more and we could afford to pay a $7,000 dividend and have $3,500 PFDs into the future. So what has actually happened? Dunleavy's cuts have pushed the state deeper into a recession, while he has paid out less in dividends than former Governor Walker did during the same period of their term. Think about this. Dunleavy got elected promising people more cash, and he hasn't even delivered the same amount of cash that Walker did. Another contrast is integrity. When former Lieutenant Governor Byron Malott's inappropriate behavior was revealed, he resigned from the Walker administration less than 24 hours after it came to light. To contrast that, Governor Dunleavy covered up his Attorney General Kevin Clarkson's sexual harassment for months and he was going to look the other way, welcome Clarkson back to work until the press broke the story. Governor Dunleavy was literally covering up for a sexual predator in a state where the rate of violence against women leads the nation. Other differences? Dunleavy's office budget has exploded over the size of Walker's, and he's hired unqualified cronies and relatives of big donors with high salaries. I mean, the first nine months, he had more controversy within his administration than Governor Walker did in an entire four years. Governor Walker put in long days, especially at the end of session. Governor Dunleavy went hunting last month with donors during the final days of the session. Walker presented specific revenue and budget cuts for a balanced plan. Dunleavy has resorted to basically three-card money in smoke and mirrors. And if you have any question about that, you could go on and on and on. Policies, integrity, honesty, regardless of the category, the fact is Governor Mike Dunleavy has failed in every one of them and will be a very vulnerable incumbent next year. And I think if Bill Walker runs with ranked choice voting and Walker's proven ability to win votes from both sides of the aisle, the race is Bill Walker's to lose. Finally, on a closing politics note, 
I want to shout out to Mayor-elect Dave Bronson for his retention of Anchorage Police Chief Kenneth McCoy and his appointment as Fire Chief and City Attorney. I said on this program last month that we'd get an early view of how he will govern, and his public safety and law appointment this past week were excellent. So cheers to Mayor-elect Dave Bronson. And now, entertainment. Entertainment. All right, let's talk entertainment. Today, I want to talk to you about the rural sitcoms of the 1960s and how they ushered in a decade of urban sitcoms in the 1970s. Yeah, weirdly random, I know, but stay with me. In 1962, Paul Henning, a producer and screenwriter, created the CBS series The Beverly Hillbillies. The series was about a poor mountaineer, Jed Clampett, who became the darling of the oil and gas industry when he pioneered how to discover oil while trying to shoot dinner. So, Clampett did what every other red-blooded American who strikes oil on their land with a rifle does. He thought of swimming pools and movie stars. So old Jed packed up his family, hopped into their minivan, and went west, moving into a beautiful mansion in Beverly Hills. For the next nine years, America would be entertained by the weekly double entendres and cultural misconceptions of the Clampets. The show was so well-received that in 1963, CBS gave Henning another 30-minute primetime slot, which he debuted Petticoat Junction, which was another rural sitcom and was another great success. The show centered on the goings-on at a rural, shady rest hotel run by a widow, her uncle, and her three daughters. The show mainly comprised the plots of the day-to-day runnings of the hotel and associated comical misunderstandings. The shady rest hotel was halfway between the towns of Pixley and Hooterville and was serviced by a train called the Hooterville Cannonball. In 1965, with now the Beverly Hillbillies and Petticoat Junction highly rated shows, Paul Hanning created a third rural sitcom called Green Acres. Green Acres was about a prominent and wealthy New York City attorney fulfilling his dream to be a farmer, and his glamorous wife uprooted unwillingly from their upscale Manhattan penthouse to a farm in Hooterville. I mean, I think we can remember and relate to those memorable words sung by Lisa Douglas. I just adore a penthouse view. Darling, I love you, but give me Park Avenue. Now, both shows, Petticoat Junction and Green Acres, shared a dependence on two things. They shared a dependence on the Hooterville Cannonball for access to their communities, and they shared a dependence on the same local store called Drucker Store. It was run by Sam Drucker, who was not only the store owner, but also the postmaster. Petticoat Junction and Green Acres were two communities whose characters literally relied on the same transportation and the same place to buy their groceries, farm supplies, and get their mail. So, you would naturally think in the six years the shows ran concurrently that every now and again the two community members would run into each other at Drucker's or at least be aware of the urgent local events. In the six years... Oliver Wendell Douglas worked his farm in Hooterville in his wonderful three-piece suit. Not once did he run into Kate Bradley, who owned the Shady Rest Hotel, in Drucker's store. And not once were the people in Hooterville even remotely aware that railroad executives spent an entire season of Petticoat Junction trying to decommission the Hooterville Cannonball. During the run of Green Acres, Sam Drucker's store appeared in 80% of all episodes. During the run of Petticoat Junction, Sam Drucker's store appeared in 70% of all episodes. Drucker's was the supply and communication hub for both of these very small communities. This would be as if Seinfeld, Friends, and Will and Grace in the entire cast of Sex and the City shared the only coffee shop in New York, but yet you never saw any of them in there at the same time. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I ask you, how is that possible? 
All right, moving on. All three of Henning's CBS programs, the Beverly Hillbillies, Petticoat Junction, and Green Acres, achieved major rating success between 1962 and 1971. One interesting note from the rural calm era, Sam Drucker, who played, of course, the owner of Drucker's store, is the only reoccurring character in history to appear on three television sitcoms at the same time, which he did by appearing on the Beverly Hillbillies, Green Acres, and Petticoat Junction simultaneously. But with the 1970s came changing social times, the anti-war movement, and a more serious tone in the country, which led CBS to move away from rural sitcoms despite their high ratings. In 1971, the Beverly Hillbillies, Green Acres, and Petticoat Junction were all canceled as a result of what was called at the time the Rural Purge. The networks felt changing times in the country demanded a more grounded reality, even in comedy. The Rural Purge was followed by comedies that offered greater adult themes and a stronger urban vibe. Series such as M.A.S.H., All in the Family, and The Mary Tyler Moore Show all provided laughs while dealing with relevant topics of the day, such as racism, sexism, and war. Today, the great rural sitcoms of the 1960s lives on in syndication, including Season 2, Episode 16 of The Beverly Hillbillies, where Granny sees a kangaroo and believes it to be a really, really large jackrabbit. That show still ranks among the 100 top-viewed primetime shows in television history history. And now some closing thoughts on U.S. Senator Lisa Murkowski. If there was ever an example of the type of behavior we need from our leaders, both in Juneau and Washington, D.C., our own U.S. Senator Lisa Murkowski showed the way. This past week, a bipartisan group of Democrats and Republican senators featuring Murkowski announced agreement on an extensive infrastructure proposal. If this bill becomes law, this will mean billions of dollars flowing into Alaska over the next five years for infrastructure improvements. Meanwhile, at the same time, our other U.S. Senator, Dan Sullivan, instead of being at the table for Alaska, he was doing a television interview complaining about the collapse of the infrastructure talks. Now, understand this. While Lisa Murkowski was working across party lines behind the scenes to make infrastructure upgrades possible for Alaska, Dan Sullivan was smiling for the cameras, complaining about the collapse of the infrastructure talk. Lisa Murkowski is a leader. And Dan Sullivan is certainly the follower among the two U.S. Senators from Alaska. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there's the music. That means our time is up. Van, you want to throw us your web? Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, if you visit abodabobrand.com, that's A-B-O, D-A-B-O-B-R-A-N-D.com. You can see a little bit more about what I do and uh, touch base with me. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's our time, and we thank you for yours.